a Lifetime original podcast. This episode covers topics that include murder and sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. Quinn, you know what it's like to meet a new friend and to be invited to their home for the first time? You don't know my life. (laughs) You know what? Actually, I'm going to disagree because I do know your life a little bit, but... Here's the deal. Okay, so you meet this new friend out and about at a farmer's market, and they invite you back to their place, and casually, they mention that their home is called Corpsewood Manor. Whoa, um, I've got some red flags coming up, but I I have to see it to believe it, so... Okay, so you go over, okay, and you enter their home, and what do you see? Corpses. Wood. (laughs) It would be my first two guesses. (laughs) <laughs> it's not that on the nose. No, they're um they have gorgeous little stained glass windows with pentagrams on them. Ooh. Mm-hmm. They have a bunch of like medieval stuff. And you walk in and there is a portrait of the host of your new friend with five bullet holes in them. Whoa. Talk about the dark arts. But Quinn, they offer you a glass of their homemade wine. This is getting very dangerous, and I'm in. I'm in for the ride. (laughs) Pour me a goblet. It's for sure a chalice of wine. (laughs) It's for sure a goblet of wine. So, listen, this couple, they invited a couple guests over, and that's sort of where our story begins. I'm Quinlan Posner. And I'm Carrie Ipema. And this is Crime of a Lifetime. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Harry, it feels like it's a little louder today where you're recording from. It What's going on? It is a little louder today, and I think it's the universe. <laughs> it's the universe saying, don't tell the story because it's so creepy. No, no, no. Um, well, I think it's like on theme. It's on brand. This is about a new home. Um, and I also feel like it's important to note that I am in a city and this whole story is going to take place in like a little secluded area in Georgia. So I think it does make me want to move to that secluded area in Georgia at this very moment. <laughs> Well, I got to say, by the time we're done with this story, you might change your mind, but let's see mm-hmm. how it goes. We'll see. Right? And also, by the time we finish this story, a house will be built here. That's just a fact. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, this is a story about a house being built, but I'm going to start off in 1982 with Avery Brock. Ooh, the hair, the style. I'm in it. I'm in 1982. Yes. Um, I was born a year later. Um, Avery Brock is 17 years old in 1982, hunting deer in the woods just outside the town of Tryon in North Georgia. And he sort of just stumbles upon this really large lot by accident. It's like 40 acres. It doesn't seem like the kind of area somebody would own just because it's not like tame. It's like kind of like lush and gorgeous and wild and mountainous and has these like great oaks. Ooh, 
And no construction? Uh, no construction at all. Yeah, so <laughs> that would have told him someone lived there. But instead, I think it's like, it's like wild mushrooms and a bobcat walks by. And you're like, this feels like nature. Wait a minute. You're saying there's a bobcat animal and not a bobcat truck? Oh, my <laughs> gosh. The difference? Eyes palpable. Enormous. Enormous. In terms of sound? Enormous. No, this is like National Park Land vibes. Actually, the land is surrounded by National Park Land. This sounds beautiful, and also it sounds like Avery's in the perfect spot to go deer hunting. Little does Avery know at, that the land that he's hunting on actually is owned by this guy, Dr. Charles Scudder. And he's heard rumors about Dr. Scudder and his companion, Joey Odom. And by companion, I'm just going to, I'm not going to bury the lead here. We mean romantic partner. These guys are together. Um, and the talk of the town is not only that these men are gay, but also that they are devil worshipers. And somewhere in these woods, you know what they're doing? They're building hmm. a freaking castle. Yeah, I mean, who wouldn't want to build a castle in the woods? But I Ugh. feel like before we get to the castle in the woods owned by the devil worshippers, let's just talk a little bit about Avery who has stumbled upon their land. Um, Avery does not live in a castle, maybe, mm -hmm. maybe in a trailer. Avery's had a really modest upbringing. He's never been to a restaurant, never been to a, a concert, never been to a, I don't know, a professional sporting event, you know? Um, in fact, this guy's never had a girlfriend. He doesn't have a driver's license. He doesn't have a job where they take taxes out of his paycheck. I mean, this is a kid who hasn't been uh, around the block, really. This kid would crush at the game Never Have I Ever. I just have to say, <laughs> he would kill. It doesn't seem like he's actually done anything. But he's also had a tough life, right? According to the book Corpsewood Manor Murders, written by Amy Petula, his dad kicked him out of the house. And so from a young age, he sort of had to survive on his own. He's had to steal food to eat. It also appears that he's hunting for food. I assume he's probably going to eat the deer that he's hunting. You mentioned that he's never had a job where they take taxes out of his paycheck. I imagine a lot of 1099s for this guy. He was once a log hauler in the National Forest, um, but it's not his career. He kind of is aimless. He goes wherever the wind blows, you know. And the wind just blew him up into these woods, right? <laughs> so he knows, like, the woods really well because, like you said, he's going hunting and stuff pretty often, but he's never stumbled upon these grounds before, the grounds of Corpsewood Manor. That's what it's called? Isn't that the best name? Corpsewood Manor. Um, I picture they have, like, a cute Victorian sign out front with, like, vines growing on it and cobwebs. So he's walking around and he happens upon the owner, Dr. Charles Scudder, um, who is a 50-year-old hippie, really. Um, and in one of the black and white pictures we have of this guy, he has long hair and a patchy beard, and he's wearing a turtleneck. It's the 80s, so that's normal. <laughs> I wear turtlenecks today. It's normal at any generation, um, at any decade. Um, and the thing about Dr. Charles Scudder is he meets Avery and he seems totally nice. And he's actually really welcoming to Avery, right? This guy has a gun is hunting on his land. But he's like, hey, come on over. You know, you can hunt on my land. That's totally cool. He also is like, I've got this wine I made. Would you like some? And Avery, being the 17-year-old deer hunting, aimless wanderer, is like, free wine? Sure. Let's go. 
But this is not just any wine. Like you said, he made it. This is uh, this is Scudder wine. I feel like I hope it has a really cute label on it that says Corpsewood Manor, Scudder wine. Queen, um, you, you think they're bottling this? No, this is like in a two liter in their back and it burns when you drink it. That's for sure what this is. I don't know. I feel like they would stand on ceremony at the Corpsewood Manor. I feel like they might make labels. It's a nice place, and they like crafts. We all know devil worshippers love crafting. And the wine is sort of like an infamous thing uh, around these parts. Like, the the townsfolk are like, yeah, yeah, these guys, uh, they make their own wine, sure. Because this couple that lives at Corpsewood Manor, they've sort of made a reputation for themselves, right? They throw a lot of parties, Oh, what kind of parties, you might ask? Oh, well, these uh, parties are pretty legendary. Um, Local teenagers around town have actually mentioned that Scudder and Joey are more than willing to share bottles of their homemade wine, which is reportedly incredibly strong. Scudder's really proud of his vintage, if we will call it that. He really is so eager to share it with guests, and he either, you know— presents it in the glass bottle in which it was fermented in, but also in silver goblets, which feels on brand at Corpsewood Manor. Yeah, if somebody offered me a goblet, you better believe I'd be like, I'm taking it. There's also uh, rumors that Scudder has a bunch of drugs that he gives out. I don't love that habit. I'm going to level with you. You know, Um, not a fan. I don't. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's cool uncle vibes, okay? It's cool uncle and he's offering... LSD, which, you know, somebody offered me the goblet. I'm going to say yes. The LSD, that's a little too rich for my blood. Um, I'm good with just the um, goblet full of bathtub wine myself, but I think the teenagers (laughs) probably love it. Well, yeah, and, you know, Joey and Charles Scudder are just, you know, really great hosts, and they host evening events, evening parties, um, But they're also responsible, it appears, because they actually would offer a a bright pink guest room to anyone who has been overserved and cannot get home safely. Um, Sleeping over in an all-pink bedroom (laughs) inside Corpsewood Manor, owned by gay devil worshippers, like, it cannot get better. Who ferment their wine and give out LSD? Like, where are we? I'm so confused right now. No, but, like, Airbnb should offer that as one of their, like— experiences. I would sign up. This is great. And somehow it actually gets better because Dr. Scudder, his partner we mentioned, Joey, is an awesome chef. And he cooks like five course meals on a wood stove for everybody. And it's one of those like locally sourced situations where they're like, we raised the chicken out front and we picked all the vegetables that we harvested from the garden and the herbs. And then they light all these candles and like play music because oh because scudder plays the harp i mean this just couldn't get it it's the best who needs the lsd they were creating a a trippy experience independent of the hallucinogenic drugs absolutely this sounds actually kind of nice to me am i wrong to say like a five course delicious meal and a silver goblet of fermented wine i mean incredible but depending on who you ask corpsewood manor is either a fantasy land or a den of Satan. And we don't know if Avery Brock knows what's in store for him at the manor, but we do know what Avery says happened next. So Dr. Scudder and Joey Odom 
host Avery the way they would anybody. They're really generous with their wine, with their drugs, um, with their harp serenades. And we cannot confirm if Avery partook in any of those drugs. We know we drank some of that wine and we know that he said it was a little bit too strong for him. So Avery's had a little too much wine, so Scudder and Joey invite him up to their guest room, which, again, they call the pink room. It's on the third floor of a second structure right next to the Brick Manor. You have to climb a ladder on the side of the building to get to it, which, frankly, I don't love that. Not a great no, escape that's hatch. that's crazy. Don't you love that they're like, oh, you're too drunk, so <laughs> just do this ropes course. Here's an obstacle course. <laughs> to get to the room where you can rest, where you can sleep it off? Like, that's nuts. Anyway, they all go in. They all do the ropes course. They climb up to the pink room. They go inside. And once they're inside, things get a little bit spicy. Um, The room is pink. It also has a lot of porn in it, a lot of Mm. sexual paraphernalia. Um, Mm. And, of course, it has a bed because it is a guest room. But it's, it's got a vibe of, like, this is not a bed that is just for sleeping, Let's have a good time, folks. This is a playroom. According to Georgia legal opinion, one thing leads to another, and Scudder is giving Avery oral sex. Apparently, Avery Brock drank a little more than he intended to, his inhibitions all but fade away, and he doesn't do anything to stop Scudder's advances. Yeah, and that's like kind of how he puts it, right? Is it's like, I was not engaged in this except on the level that I didn't stop it. And I didn't stop it, but I didn't give consent. But before, like, we all jump to any kind of conclusions about that, I would also say that it's important to know in this moment that Avery, sober in the light of day, continues to go back time and time again to Corpsewood Manor after this happens. I think we can be a little... Question mark, question marky about it because that's what I would say. Yeah, because I think it's also worth noting that what Scudder is doing is illegal, and it's not because Avery is seventeen. No, 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 no. Because in 1982, the age of consent in Georgia is 14 years old. No, 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 no. That just grosses me out saying it. But because the act of oral sex at this point is illegal, especially when it's with members of the same sex, but. Just a friendly reminder that not too long ago, certain kinds of other sex acts would land you in jail. That is a riot. I mean, that's that's crazy. You got to get yourself a secret pink room that you have to do a ropes course to get to if you want to have oral. It's. <laughs> I guess you'll know if the police are coming. <laughs> Hear them climbing up the ladder. Like, I guess it's like sort of like <laughs> a built-in booby trap. So, after a few of these trips of going to Corpsewood and having, you know, some wine, some good times... Suddenly, Avery really just changes his tune and decides Scudder has totally taken advantage of him. And he's mad about it. Around the same time, Avery actually moves into a rundown trailer with another guy whose name is Tony West. Now, Tony and Avery have a lot of similarities um, because Tony's also had a pretty tough life, right? He's aimless. He's going wherever the wind blows. um, And his life has been pretty hard. Tony has made his fair share of mistakes, and there's been some stuff in his life that's been really tough. According to the book Corpsewood Manor Murders, as a teenager, he was committed to a mental institution until he turned 18. And once he got out, things did not get much better. Apparently, he committed several crimes throughout his life. 
this just sounds like a recipe for disaster. Like to be raised during those formative years and you're in an institution, it would be really, really hard to uh, escape problems later on, I'd imagine. And so I think that he and Avery really bond, right? Because mm-hmm. they've kind of both experienced different, very different hardships, but they've both had a hard upbringing. Then both of them have like the absent dad syndrome thing, right? Because for Tony's part, his dad actually died in a railroad accident when he was 10. And that was really tragic and hard for him and and it messed him up. And according to Amy Petula's book, Avery got kicked out of the house by his dad. So he's probably got some anger stuff towards him. Um, But it's like it's the no dads club, really. And Tony feeling for Avery kind of and seeing the similarities there, he sort of takes him under his wing. But not everybody sees this as like um, a sweet movie about these two young men and their bonding experiences, right? Right. Because Avery's niece actually says of the whole thing, it's like, oh, yeah, he took him under his wing and it was the wing of a bat out of hell. So Avery is living with this guy and he tells him about Scudder and Joey – the gay devil worshippers on the mountain. Um, And he tells him how Scudder would give them wine for free. And we know that that's, we said it earlier, this is a teen magnet. Free wine? You want teens to hang out with you? Free wine's going to do it. So Tony's like, let's go. So when they get there, Scudder brings them both up this time to the pink room. Wine is drunk. Scudder makes advances. But Tony's not into it. I don't think he participates, right? Is that right? He doesn't, yeah. Yeah, no, he doesn't. And he's like, he's like, do your thing. Yeah, Tony doesn't participate, right? He's he's not into the whole homosexuality thing. He's like, not for me. And he pieces out. He climbs down the ladder and he gets out of there. <laughs> and later, Avery and Tony get back to their trailer and they're talking about these guys, um, these devil worshippers on the mountain. And they're like, God, it's crazy. It's like they have this, like, castle. They have all these, you know, this wine, these parties. Do you think they're, like, super-duper rich? They must be. Who else could live in a castle? Um, And neither one of them has actually even been inside the main house. But they're like, I bet there's tons of crazy treasures to be had inside. According to Amy Petula's book, they begin to plot a plan. They think... What if we robbed Scudder and Joey Odom? It would be easy. The manor is really isolated. Nobody would hear them scream and and they talk and Avery gets more resentful about what Scudder had done to him. Avery has like very complicated feelings, I think, towards Scudder. And he's like, in this moment, he's like, yeah, maybe that would resolve them for me. Let me rob this guy. He deserves to have some sort of consequence. We can't really know what exactly Avery's feelings are about Scudder, but we know that after Tony and Avery go to Corpsewood Manor, they start having conversations. And remember, they also both don't have dads. So there's complicated feelings toward older men, for sure. And they're saying, let's get this guy. You know what? We deserve his stuff. We deserve to live better than we do. Let's go get ours. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. 
Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. What Avery and Tony don't know as they're planning to rob these rich, gay, mansion-owning devil worshippers is that don't judge a book by its cover. Not everything is as it seems because the reality is that Scudder and Joey Odom are anything but rich. Yeah, the sort of irony here is they moved into this castle because they didn't have money. They left all their money behind. This was like their their modest shift in life, which is to say like Charles Scudder used to be a professor of pharmacology at Loyola University in Chicago. And he lived in a really nice house then, legit, like a a mansion, and he made a ton of money. Yeah, and he was previously married to a woman and has two kids with her. And Joey was actually his housekeeper, and he was their cook, the family's cook, for two decades. And once the children grew up and they were out of the house, that's when Joey, you know, he became a little bit more than just a housekeeper. And Dr. Scudder, you know, with this sort of new romance, this kind of identity that he's coming into, he's starting to worry of like, what what is the purpose of life, right? It's like he's he's going to work, he's providing for his family, but he's unfulfilled and he's worried that if he just continues on this, it's just going to end with a heart attack. Yeah, he needs to flip everything upside down. And I think the first step in flipping it is that he, you know, indulges in this romantic relationship he's obviously probably been thinking about for a long time. And then it's like, wait, what am I doing? And he's turning 50. It's this midlife crisis vibe. And it's like, forget it. So he quits his job at the university, sells this really nice house and all his stuff. And he's like, let's do a simple life, a straightforward, simple life with more beautiful things and less garbagey things. Let's get rid of the gas bills and the electricity bills and a job that is just to get a paycheck. I want to be unattached. I don't want to owe anybody anything. I want to drive uh, my own existence. So he gets this pension and he buys just a really cheap, big plot of land, this this bobcat mushroom-laden mountainous land in Georgia. There's something kind of optimistic about it to me, right? It's like yeah, he and his new partner, he's allowing to sort of like live life with happiness and with purpose. And so he and Joey, 
they they travel from Chicago down to Georgia to see these 40 acres of land that he's purchased and it is the dead of winter and a blizzard has just blown through. And so they get there and they don't have anything with them. And so they actually have to drink the melted down snow and they end up sleeping in their car while they wait for the storm to die down. But once it does, they roll up their sleeves and they get to work building their dream home. Yeah, I think it's really romantic, don't I do you? Too. Just well, that the story idea of, of like them coming down, like there's so much adversity because at this point, this is in the 70s, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, and they're going to a rural part of Georgia as a gay couple. I, I That is, I can imagine that to feel really challenging. It explains to me though how happy they actually were with one another yeah. in the sense that I think that it was a feeling of like, if I have you, I have it all. Like mm-hmm. I, I can do anything as long as it's you and me doing it. And do anything they do because this is really crazy what they're up against. This is a guy that was like, I'm a pharmacology professor and now he's digging a water well and building a brick outhouse and a chemical toilet and they do everything. They dig trenches for their pipes. They lay the foundation for their home. I mean, just picture that for a minute. I just like imagine like a montage with like shirtless older men just sweating Mm -hmm. and really building this house. Covered in mud. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it was chill. I don't think it took a minute because even like how they insulate it, basically they insulate it by making a a Matryoshka doll home. They like build, picture they like build a brick house, but then like a a few feet out from there, they build a brick house and a few feet out from there, they build a brick house. Any construction fans out there love that analogy that Quinn has clearly never built a home. Neither have I. I'm not saying it, but that analogy... That's what I'm picturing. It's like house within a house within a house. Now it'll be warm. It's a turducken (laughs) house. It's a turducken (laughs) house. It's very smart, but it's a medieval turducken house. They got a point of view. They get a strong point of view. Yeah. So they've got the shell and inside they put a kitchen, dining room, living room, and then a second floor with two bedrooms. And then outside that structure, they have uh, the chicken coop, the ropes course to the pink room. I mean, it's amazing. They do this whole damn thing by hand. And they fill their house with mahogany furniture from the Chicago house. They did get to bring some furniture from Chicago. They bring their two dogs down, Beelzebub and Arsenith. One is named for the demon you might have heard of, and the other is for an H.P. Lovecraft character. And, you know, listen, a house is not a home without a little decor. And so among the mahogany furniture in this medieval-style house, they have satanic statues and some macabre art. Sounds very chic. There's also, among this kind of uh, dark sort of styled artwork collection, they have a self-portrait, yes, he made it himself, of Dr. Scudder, with a gag in his mouth and five bullet holes in his head. Now, Joey is actually the one who had the vision of this one night and, like, said it, and then Scudder was like, tell me more, and painted it. And he tells guests when they're over, well, that's how I'm going to die. And, you know, it's it feels like um, he's being a bit provocative, he's being a bit morbid, which sounds like him. I don't know the guy, but I'm starting to get a flavor for him. And I think that's uh, 
that's what the home is. It's provocative yeah, and it's it, morbid. It's definitely provocative. I think they really lean into the devil worshiper satanic vibes, right? They lo- they think they just mm-hmm. love the style. They love the decor. And remember we said like he didn't want to be um he didn't want to owe nobody nothing. So they don't actually set up gas or electricity. They don't do the bills. They do the matryoshka doll to keep warm and then you got some candlelight to have illumination. And look, everything that they do, it feels like there's a lot of attention, there's a lot of love, there's a lot of admiration for nature going on um, in, in the surroundings that they create. The kitchen, and remember Joey loves to cook, he does it all over wood fire. And just the closest thing they have in this house to what we would consider modern technology is a kerosene fridge, which is not very modern, to say the least. Um <laughs> And Dr. Scudder actually wrote about his new digs in a Mother Earth News publication. And he said, if we want a different, fuller, more exciting life than we're leading, one closer to this beautiful earth, we can have it. Our only chains are those in our minds. So we've talked about how they moved to this little secluded space in Georgia, but I think we're not sort of painting the full picture because while they're far away from town it's not like they're shying away from town right like they're Mm -hmm. going in they're making trips they're they're meeting the community um they're not living in total seclusion they're not hiding from the people of this town you know on their car they actually had painted um a pentagram on the side of it so it's like they'd be rolling down the street in this small town and be like look at this pentagram that must have drove some people crazy i think it's a little funny at this point because I'm sure they -hmm. just wanted to get a rise out of their neighbors. Word spreads and they are known as the gay devil worshippers. But again, that wasn't totally the truth either. No, no, because like the people like them. They're going to town and they're like, hey, you guys, we just brought you some produce from the garden. And they're like really good neighbors passing out the produce. Um, They're bringing honey down from their beehives. Like I think people are excited to see them. If there was a farmer's market, I bet they have a stand. And in saying that, we've been calling them devil worshippers because that's what they're known around town as. But I think it's very, very important that we say explicitly that they probably didn't believe in the devil, right? It's like, let alone worship the devil. Scudder is a member of the Church of Satan. And on the Church of Satan's website, they describe their beliefs as the acceptance of man's true nature, that of a carnal beast living in a cosmos that is indifferent to our existence. It's essentially atheism, right? It's it's rebellious, perhaps a little nihilistic, but I think that it is closer to atheism as we know it than it is uh, they're not worshiping Satan. That's not part of it. And if you want to point to all of the decor, I think that that's something about aesthetics. That's, that's the, they like um, a skull wallpaper and so do many. I think it's aesthetics, but I also think it was provocative, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I think, you know, because of the way they were living, they wanted to live loudly in a way. And in doing so, they weren't shy about using these symbols. But I don't think that the way that people are talking about them generally is malicious because Scudder was like an extrovert. 
and he was chatty with everybody and he was really kind and he was really well liked. And even the sheriff would say about them being Satan worshipers, well, if they are, you know, that's just freedom of religion for you. My, <laughs> how the times have changed. <laughs> like, I mean, I can't emphasize enough how much these two were truly living their best life, right? I mean, they essentially just went off the grid and built their own little slice of heaven or hell. I don't know how they would say it, but it seems like they just, they had each other, like we said, and that was enough. And not much else because they're not making money anymore. They're bringing in like $200 a month um, about the amount of money that they earned in interest on Scudder's pension. Yeah, but it's all worth it because they're able to live freely. So yeah, they're able to live freely. They're able to live happily and it's really beautiful. And then you sort of, you have the contrast of that with Avery Brock and Tony West who are, it seems like, not happy, certainly not satisfied with their lot in life. And they are about ready to steal whatever they can get their hands on. But again, what they do not know is that the wealth of Corpsewood Manor isn't cash. It's love. They are in for a rude awakening. So on the night of December 12th, 1982, Avery Brock and Tony West, they pack a little bag, and in that bag is a rifle, and they put it in Tony's car, and then they think the more the merrier, and they invite two of Avery's friends to come with them on a trip to Corpsewood Manor. And these two friends, they're teenagers, and they don't know where they're going. They don't know why they're going there. Um, Probably they heard about some wine. But Tony's like, you know what? It's a really good idea to bring more people, because then maybe that older guy, Scudder's not going to try any of that homosexual stuff I don't think a teenager is going to deter him based on past behavior, but okay. Weird flex, but... Completely. I think I think he must just know that they're gonna be up to mischief that night and they want um they want the numbers in their favor, no matter who is the are the people that comprise those numbers. Um, because the guys they're bringing are just like free wine, great, but they don't know what is planned. Yeah, and so they're trekking up a mountain in a car and you know, they've brought with them a party favor. A little something called Toodaloo. Yep, you heard it right. And it is a mix of paint thinner, glue, and alcohol. Which sounds to me, in a word, intense. And they arrive in vile. (laughs) And, you know, they pull up to the Corpsewood Manor and Scudder comes out in what I imagine is like an apron or just like some sort of like host gear with like a candelabra, you know, very mm-hmm, Lumiere vibes. Mm-hmm. And he's like, please come in and here, come climb this ladder up to the pink room. Would you like some wine? Here you go. But over the course of the next couple hours, they all sit in the pink room drinking uh, Scudder's wine and huffing toodaloo. And then the wine runs out and Scudder's like, you want more? And they're like, why yes. So he goes to get more. Then they run out of tootaloo and Avery's like, I'm going to get more. But actually what he's doing is he's going and getting that gun that he packed. Oh God. So Avery climbs back to the top of the ladder with the gun in his hand, which I know we're in a serious moment, but I have to say that does require a lot of balance. I don't know if the gun has a strap on his shoulder, but I don't know if he's doing a one hand while it's Mm -hmm. in his hand. We don't know. Um, And 
he rolls into the pink room with the gun in hand and Scudder sees the rifle at Avery's side and he just goes, <laughs> bang, bang, as if it's all a joke. Clearly the wine and toodaloo have gone to his head. Yeah. Well, they've gone to everybody's head, I think, because I think like when he says that, they all kind of laugh and it cuts the tension in this way that it doesn't actually progress the drama because it's almost like they would feel ridiculous after being like laughed at that way to then be like, we're serious. Like, so they're like, yeah, it is just, that is funny. So they just <laughs> lay the gun on the ground by Avery and they just LOL. keep hanging out. LOL, OMG. <laughs> so then BRB, because when Scudder stands up to trim the wick of the oil lamp that is lighting the room, Tony grabs him by the hair and puts a knife to his neck. And it feels like, you know, the plan is set in motion, but Scudder, who's being held by his hair, is staying remarkably calm. Tony and Avery tie him up with strips of bedsheets and they start threatening him and they ask, where is the money? Where is this fortune that you've amassed? And Scudder just calmly tells them that there is no money except for what they have in the bank. And even that is not that much. They're not getting anywhere with Scudder. So they just like make more bedsheet ribbons and they stuff some in his mouth to gag him. And they go to check on Joey, who, you know, made dinner and is down clean in the kitchen. And they're like, maybe he'll tell us where all the money is. So at this point, Avery takes the gun and climbs down the stairs, leaving Tony and the teenagers with Scudder, who is still being held at knife point. And I just want to just give a brief reminder, Tony and Avery brought just two other random teenagers, so they don't know what's happening. They're not looped into this plan, and so they're panicking. They're begging Tony to let Scudder go. They're like, get us out of here. I don't want to be here anymore. But Tony won't let them. He threatens to hurt his teenage friends if they try to leave. Right, so Tony's sort of holding court. He's got sort of everyone is his hostage at this point except Avery who's gone down to the kitchen and suddenly they hear a barrage of gunshots and everyone goes quiet and Tony grabs Scudder and drags him gagged down the ladder to see what is going on and up until this point up until the gunshots I think Scudder did a really good job staying very very calm and collected because he's good at diffusing situations. He's a smart guy. He's good with words. He's good with people. But after those gunshots, I don't know what he must be thinking. Well, it's immediately out of control, right? He hears that and is like, what's happening? What's going on? And when he's dragged to the kitchen, he sees his beloved Joey Odom laying in a puddle of his own blood on the floor of the manor. Avery has shot him four times And those two dogs, he killed them too. When Scudder sees the body of his closest friend, his lover, his confidant, he absolutely loses it. Tony and Avery are still trying to ask him, where's the money? As you can imagine, like his mind cannot even go there right now to explain that there isn't any. He's just a mess of grief and shock and all he wants is to go be by Joey once he sees Joey on the ground so he is pulling away from them to run to go be by Joey's side 
As he's running to be by Joey's side, Tony pulls the trigger and he shoots Scudder in the head. Scudder falls to his knees and Tony shoots him again. But he's still moving. Scudder then drops back to the bookcase and Tony shoots him two more times before Scudder is still. The would-be robbers have just become murderers. murderers. Two times over. And now they're looking through Corpsewood Manor for this imagined loot that's got to be here. There's got to be treasure inside this castle. And obviously, no, there isn't anything. <laughs> the, the only things of real value that they find is they find a few measly coins, some jewels, a fancy knife, and some other knickknacks. But the most valuable goods in the house are things that they can't actually steal. It's like the Elizabethan furniture, the mahogany furniture, the gold-plated harp, but those are too heavy and too big to transport. Yeah, I think they can't believe that there's really nothing there. So they're like making these poor, traumatized teenagers they brought help them just tear apart this house and look everywhere. And while they're doing that, they hear a groan coming out from underneath Scudder's gag. He's still alive. This blows my mind. He has been shot in the head four times, and he's still alive. Avery looks over, and he shoots him one last time in the head, right between the eyes. He brags about it to Tony. Scudder takes five shots in the head that night. He is bound, and he is gagged. And what is so unbelievably strange and truly unexplainable is that somehow Scudder knew that's how he would die. Joey predicted it. Scudder painted it. And this was years ago. And what's such a strange picture in my mind is Avery and Tony, the murderers, tearing apart this house... They probably pass by that painting over and over again that depicts Scudder and his slumped head with a gag over his mouth and five bullet holes in his forehead. They must not even notice. But can you imagine how scared they would be if they noticed that picture? Like, imagine that they're walking by it and they look up that at is, it and it's you just see wild. It's just a painted wild. picture of what you've just done to someone. It's so crazy. The last thing they steal from Charles Scudder and Joey Odom is the Jeep, the one with the pentagram painted on the side. Their plan is to drive all the way to Mexico to escape the consequences and any suspicion. What's mind-boggling to me is they steal the car that is literally the most recognizable car associated with the victims of murder. It doesn't feel like a well-thought-out plan, right? It's like they are basically have an arrow pointed at them being like, it's us. We killed them and took this car with a pentagram on the side. No, I mean, it feels like a, a thing that kids would come up with. They're like, and then it's so convenient because we'll have that car. And then we can go to Mexico. And I'm like, great, you guys. Let's, you know what? Let's see how that works out for you. Meanwhile... The two teenagers they brought to the crime scene are like, well, what about us? And I can't, I'm sorry, I shouldn't laugh, but it's so, so stupid. Like, this is how not thought out this was. They have two witnesses to their crime that they just were like, here, tag along. And so they're not going to take these two teenagers with them. And they threaten to kill these two guys if they speak a word of what happened. And then in that pentagram-laden Jeep, they drive off. 
Yeah, they're trying to beat it as fast as they can. They drive all the way to Vicksburg, Mississippi before it occurs to them, you know? You know what? We should probably ditch this car. I, Maybe I, we shouldn't. I, I feel a- like driving in the victim's car, that could be a bad idea. A bad, a bad look. Some might say maybe the toodaloo rubbed off. Maybe like the 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 high alcohol wine and the toodaloo finally yeah. faded. They were like, "Wow, we didn't really think this through, did we?" But in order to ditch this car, they need to get a new car. And as luck would have it, wouldn't you know, they see this guy sleeping in the car right next to them. So Tony, with his little gun by his side, he pulls it out. He wakes this guy up. Yeah, they don't know it, but the guy they're waking up, the guy that they're holding at gunpoint, Mm -hmm. is a Navy lieutenant named Kirby Key Phelps. So they force this guy out of the car, handcuff him, and they bring him into the woods. And Tony's like, we'll just handcuff him to a tree. But in order to do that, you know, you have to, like, keep the handcuff on one hand, Mm -hmm. unhandcuff the other to bring their hands so they're, like, hugging the tree. And in that moment when he's got the one free hand, he goes for him. Yeah, he sees this as his opportunity to escape, to get out of there. And so Phelps, with his one hand free, he tries to punch him. But Tony then takes his gun out and he shoots him three times in the head. They leave Lieutenant Phelps' body in the woods, 200 yards from the street. The bodies of Dr. Charles Scudder and Joey Odom aren't found for five days. Friends who came to visit the couple discovered the bloody crime scene. And I can't imagine the shock they must have felt when they found their friends killed and the house ransacked. Yeah, but you know who's even more shocked than them is the Georgia police. Because when they get to the crime scene at the manor, they're like, whoa, this is really gruesome. But also, they have not been guests in the home. So they're contending with the gruesomeness of the crime scene Mm -hmm. itself And the backdrop of that being this home that we've sort of explained to you guys is filled with a lot of satanic imagery. And there's homoerotic art and pornographic books and there's human skulls. You know, some are real, some are candle holders, that kind of thing. Quinn, do you know when the satanic panic was really thriving? I think it was in the 70s, right? Totally. And I think it like really speaks to this time that like fear and I and I think it's so interesting that on a community level, like these gay devil worshipers like were kind of beloved by their community. But I think when it comes to like this crime, I think you're seeing sort of like the media cultural sort of like fear manifest. And the first instinct of these police officers on the scene of the crime is to go, hey, this must have been a satanic ritual of sorts. Because if there's even a hint of satanic ritual, they're going to go towards that explanation. I think people love that excuse. And they go as far as to even search the grounds for graves of other victims, like really pulling at straws here. And they do find some recently upturned earth, which was a nothing burger. It was probably just some gardening that they were doing. The real victims here are Scudder and Joey, and they just happen to like some weird art. Yeah. But the police now, they just don't, this is a big distraction, I imagine. And they're trying to figure out what happened with these murders. Um, Conveniently, around the time that the bodies are found, they also discover the pentagram Jeep, which has been abandoned in Louisiana. Because it's so easy to identify. Police in Mm -hmm. Vicksburg recall seeing it near the rest stop where Lieutenant Phelps' body would be found on December 15th. But 
ultimately it is not police work that solves the crime and catches the criminals. Avery Brock and Tony West would return to Georgia of their own accord. While these guys are on their way to Mexico, you know, wouldn't you know it, a murder, it just might not be the best way to build a friendship because Avery and Tony, you know what, they're not getting along. You know, they're they're probably fighting over who's driving, the radio, all this stuff. And they make it all the way to Texas before Avery is like, you know what, I'm actually not going to go to Mexico with you. But Tony still does. They fight over what they should do next, what their next plan of action should be. You know what he says to him? Toodaloo. <laughs> Toodaloo. Toodaloo, Avery. And Avery's like, bye. And he hitchhikes his way back to Georgia. He actually, this is crazy. He's got his thumb out. Guess who picks him up? Ooh. A cop. A cop. I mean, I actually, I feel really bad for that guy because, you know, later he probably found out who Avery was and was like, oops. <laughs> but Avery ends up getting a ride. He gets to uh, Marietta, Georgia, and he hops on a payphone, calls his mommy, and she's like, hey, Avery, there is a warrant for your arrest. And he's like, Tony killed those people. Mom, I didn't kill those people. Could you just come pick me up at this gas station? And then Avery goes to that gas station and tells the attendant at the gas station, Avery, this is an overshare, that he is wanted for murder. And then it's just like moments before the police are there. Now, meanwhile, back in Texas, here's Tony. The guy is broke and he is exhausted. And He's worried that Avery's going to get caught and tell the whole plan of that they were going to go to Mexico. So he's like, listen, I got to I got to change directions. I got to think on my feet because that always goes so well for these guys. So he turns his car around and he drives to Chattanooga, Tennessee, where he runs out of gas. And that is enough for Tony to say, you know what? I'm good. No more running for me. I don't like this on the lamb stuff. I'd like to be caught. So he runs into a Chattanooga police officer and he tells him, hey, listen, I killed a guy. And the officer's like, you did what? And Tony tells him about the murders. So the cop runs Tony's name through the database twice and he doesn't get any matches. So the cop kind of looks at him and goes, hey, man, I'm sorry. I actually can't arrest you. But what I can do is I'll drive you across state lines to Georgia. What is it about Avery and Tony just getting rides from getting police rides from officers? Cops. It is wild. And once they get to Georgia and they discover that there is, in fact, a warrant for Tony's arrest, the police in Georgia are like, um, this actually is a problem because a Tennessee police officer is in Georgia and they're hand-delivering him. So actually, can you take him back across state lines to Tennessee so that Georgia can arrest him when he crosses the state lines? It's this like weird game of like... The bureaucracy, I don't totally follow, but it is absurd. Where I wonder they're like, if it like... Totally, we'd love to arrest you, but can you just stand here? Nope, a little to the left, a little more to the left. Okay, no, I no, imagine... take two steps forward, Simon says, and then you're under arrest. I imagine it's like a baseball game and you know like when there's a runner and they have him like in between first and second base mm-hmm. except it's like one is Georgia. I just – it is so wild to me and I think probably – and this could be wrong but I think probably it's because it would make it a federal crime if they 
or because maybe it's inadmissible that in Tennessee, I don't know what's happening. It's wild. Either way, I think it's like very fitting that in this crime that was so ill-conceived, so poorly planned, so sloppily executed with little thought um, for what the fallout would be, Mm -hmm. it feels fitting that it's then sort of a very bumbling conclusion when they both end up arrested. It's kind of like their dopiness is what ends up getting them both finally in jail. They both get charged with capital murder in the deaths of Dr. Charles Scudder and Joseph Odom. Tony is also charged with the murder of Lieutenant Kirby Phelps. Avery Brock tries to claim in his defense that he killed Charles Scudder and Joey Odom because they spiked his wine with LSD. He tells the jury that he didn't understand what was going on because he was so high. And, you know, it's not lost on us that because these guys were also uh, devil worshippers, Satanists, Mm -hmm. whatever, uh, that was not probably helpful. No, the media takes this information and runs with it. Oh, yeah. And there's just, there's, they're not going to give these guys any sympathy, even though they were the victims and they were murdered. They were gay Satanists and like the press is running with this devil worship narrative when actually the people that knew them in this community are like, nah, that's not really what it was. Um, but they are listing in the trial items that were found in this home as though the items are evidence. Do you know what I mean? Like they're like, oh, well, you know, we looked through the home of these guys and they had creepy art. And they had porn and they had wigs. Uh, so clearly there was something evil going on when, you know, I, I, who among us does not uh, have wigs and porn, I ask? Tell it to us, sis. <laughs> you tell them, Quinn. Ay, it's ay, so ay. insane, it's too, so because sad. like the premeditation this required, too, is so laughable to me that, like, you're you're saying that you were overwhelmed and they spiked your drink when you had a gun in your car. What? It just doesn't make any sense. And it's really heartbreaking that these men who were the real victims were also put on trial at their own murder trial. It just doesn't make any Mm -hmm. sense. Um, And to make matters even worse is that Avery Brock and Tony West were both self-described Christians. They actually attended Bible study just two days before the murder. And it became this sort of like, it's it just the irony to me, the irony is not lost on me, right? It's like the media are painting these victims as devil worshipers and these murderers as good Christian boys, when in reality, it's like these boys were not good Christian boys. They murdered two people. But ultimately, the two men's confessions and witness testimony by the two teenagers on the scene prove enough to earn them both convictions. Well, that's probably why in the end, um, what happens is that Avery Brock gets three life sentences for killing Scudder and Odom instead of the death penalty. Tony West is also convicted for the Corpsewood murders as well as the killing of Kirby Phelps and receives the death penalty, which he later appeals. He then pleads guilty in exchange for a life sentence. Uh, I feel like I'm just left with such a bad taste in my mouth from yeah from all from all places it's just yeah and it does feel like the sentencing even though it got flipped around later it feels like it's making a statement that these two gay men their lives were nothing compared to the life of this veteran like that's the one that feels like they they just give it more weight it's so obvious i would say that in this 
situation, I would say that the legal system seems to have worked because fortunately they all did get life sentences. And I, and I do Mm -hmm. think the gay panic defense is not a strong one, especially if you go on to murder another person, right? Like it just doesn't, it just doesn't totally compute. It just seems like a silly, um, defense altogether. What I think to me, what's really heartbreaking is like the court of public opinion, the fact that yeah. these these victims, these murder victims, were on trial for their life, um, for their lifestyle when they were the ones murdered. Like it just, and they were these nice guys that yeah. were basically like farmers market uncles. And yeah, and <sighs> I think, listen, I think we did paint a picture in the beginning, um, according to Avery's testimony, of like what um, the sexual relationship between Scudder and Avery was early on, and. And, you know, nobody will ever know exactly what happened in that respect, right? Because the only person that can communicate is Avery, who murdered the other person. Um, Mm -hmm. So I would say take that with a grain of salt. But also, you know, I will say it does leave a bad taste in my mouth that, like, this was an older man with a 17-year-old boy. So I I can't, you know, that I can't. I just like it's all bad. And the younger boy says it was predatory. Yeah, we exactly. don't know the answer, but I do think that we all recognize that there could be a million different versions of this story. Mm-hmm. Um, and that at the end of the day, these people were murdered and you can call it a gay panic defense, but you ransacked their home looking for valuables. And you planned it in advance and went to their home. Um, If you were panicked, a really good thing to do is to buzz off, is to toodaloo and not go to the place where you feel uncomfortable. Catch more gripping stories pulled straight from the headlines with all new original series and movies on Lifetime and stream on the Lifetime app or on demand. Check out mylifetime.com to find out what's airing because it might just be the case we talk about next. We used many sources in our research for today's episode. Among the most useful were the following. An article from Atlanta Magazine entitled The Corpsewood Murders 40 Years Later by B.T. Hartman. An article in the Chicago Tribune entitled Death Was the Final Visitor to Home of Devil Worshippers by Andy Knott. And the book The Corpsewood Manor Murders in North Georgia by Amy Petula. If you'd like to learn more about this story, we recommend you check out these sources. Crime of a Lifetime is produced by Tanner Robbins. Our associate producers are Hazel May and us, Quinlan Posner and Carrie Ipema. Our sound designer and editor is Arlen Ginsberg. Our senior producer is John Thrasher. McKamey Lynn is our supervising producer and Jesse Katz is our executive producer. If you like what you hear on the show, please subscribe, rate, and review Crime of a Lifetime on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Copyright 2023, a Television Network, LLC. All rights reserved. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.